ecosystems um, have proven to be the most successful form of doing business. The largest, most highest capitalized firms in the world are ecosystem businesses. So I'm sorry, there's no way around it anymore. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode of the Most Awesome Founder podcast, I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Professor Dries Fahms, for a discussion on innovation with Axel Dennis. Axel has spent the better part of two decades as an entrepreneur and business innovator, having launched over 40 digital products and led numerous digital transformation projects with large multinationals. He's currently the Director of Corporate Development and Innovation for PricewaterhouseCoopers in Germany, where he leads open innovation strategy and corporate venturing for this world-renowned consulting firm. But I'll let Axel tell you the rest. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Axel, welcome to the show. Hey, Dries Garrett. Thanks for having me. It is, uh, it's great to have you here. I am super interested in kind of learning a little bit about your background, hearing your story and kind of how you got to this topic of, uh, of open innovation and ecosystems and your role in, in corporate venturing, which is a topic I am quite passionate about as well. But with each of our, each of our episodes, we like to start things off with a little bit of storytelling, um, putting your experience and context a little bit. So maybe you could start things off and telling us, tell us a little bit about your journey, where you come from and kind of how you got to the place that you are today. Yeah, I'm happy to do that, Garrett. So um, uh, first of all, awesome show um, that you're running here. I am a little nervous after I've seen that you have had great people like, you know, Ron Ottner, Steve Blank, you know, those are all my heroes, so <laughs> I'm very honored to be here. Um, how do I get to where I am? Um, how, how did I get here? So I think the first touch point with my topic um, that I really love, that is the topic of business ecosystems, I came when I started my first company after college. It was in the mid-2000s. Um, and back then, ecosystems were present, you know, in the academic discussion. But in reality, founding a startup in Berlin, <clears throat> I found myself bound to the very normal things of doing business. You know, for, for example, I, I, I had a company and uh, there was stuff that I couldn't do because you can't do everything. And then, for example, in this case, I needed a development team you know, developers, designers, product people, they were very short uh, in Berlin in 2000s. It was not a tech town as it is today. So we figured out how can we solve this? And then uh, the CTO in my company, he, he was from Chile 
and and he said look let's 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 hire a team in chile and 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 that's what we did so very usual supply chain play for you know offshoring uh if we couldn't do something we just buy it somewhere else in the world and um and then i think my aha moment when it comes to ecosystems was then when i moved to the silicon valley i think in about 2012 or something and i i realized there with all this um, interplay of different actors like universities, of course, capital, but founders, smart people from around the world, how important this entrepreneurial or geographical ecosystem was for innovation, for success. Um, so um, I believe that, um, that that was my cultural uh, awakening with with this topic and then afterwards when i founded my my next firm again in berlin but 10 years later in 2015 i found that berlin has also become a hotbed um, and kind of an entrepreneurial ecosystem for itself and, and it was much easier uh, for me you know i had access to talent access to capital um, way more than 10 years before so um, I think the, the, the journey that I had as, as an entrepreneur was what brought me then now to, to PricewaterhouseCoopers Germany, which is um, uh, uh, obviously the number one consultancy in, in Germany, but it still had a, a huge um, challenge when I joined two and a half years ago. There was no dedicated um, team for, for uh, open innovation and, and ecosystem play. And I found out that, that this large corporate uh, with 14,000 employees in Germany alone is facing the exact same challenges that I faced as a founder. That even this firm full of you know, intelligence and experts can't do everything on its own anymore. Um, so I, I accepted this challenge and said, look, um, I've done this before. I think we can, we can make this, uh, this, this, this firm uh, uh, more capable of solving important problems in the world when we open it up uh, and, and transform it you know, from, a, from a, a service firm to a more pro product and tech-enabled ecosystem player. And that's what I'm doing right now. So. And, and Axel, can you maybe explain a bit more about uh, whether you had to convince people at PwC for the need of ecosystems, or was it more that they already realized that they needed to make the transition and that they actually hired you to help them in that transition? To be very honest, uh, the latter was the case uh, when I joined with my uh, partner in crime, Florian, um, to build up this this ecosystem and corporate development team that we have right now with about 25 people we were asked to do so by the back then very visionary ceo of the company um, so we came in by the ceo's uh, agenda which is the case for many ecosystem or in corporate innovators i found, figured out um, later that it is it is a hot topic in, in, on, on the C-level, right? It's a CO topic. 
And, um, and the convincing part comes next uh, when you go down and, um, and try to convince uh, the rest of the firm. Um, and that's ongoing. So um, we're still advocating and, and um, we're still uh, in uh, the process because it is a cultural change, obviously. I'm curious about, you know, I've spent the past year building startups with, with big companies, big multinationals. And one of the kind of common themes that I would say I see with these multinationals is one, they have no shortage of, of talent. And when you have a, a reputable brand like PwC that's known around the world and has the ability to recruit top talent from literally anywhere in the world, how important are more local ecosystems as opposed to just being able to cherry pick what you want and bring them to where you need them? Garrett, I think I think that the, the labor market has changed over the past year significantly. And no single firm is able to attract the talent it needs anymore. Um, I think this is true for Europe. Um, you can see it in the US, which is more dynamic, obviously the labor market in general, but um, so there is this built, uh, what, what's this called again? It's Joyce Law, right? Bill Joy, the guy who was the co-founder of, of Unix and of, of Sun Microsystems. I think it call, it's called Joyce Law. He says, um, no matter who you are, every uh, wait a minute, it says, no matter who you are, the most smartest people work for someone else. So that's true, you know, for Google, for, you know, the most attractive employers in the world, we are all facing the same problem. Uh, you never have all the people uh, around that you need to, 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 to do your business. So at PwC, for example, there is a lot, you know, the, the growth is basically affected by a shortage of people uh, in, a, in a way that I can't uh, elaborate here a lot, but um, it would be very easy to do significantly more business uh, uh, if the labor market wasn't uh, in the way that it is. So to answer your question, um, I think what um, what we are doing here is we're basically opening up the firm in a sense that it doesn't matter so much where you are anymore. So for example, we have a policy that you can work in other European countries for, for months. Um, you, you have a complete remote uh, work setup. Um, it is that, uh, you know, we try to delocalize and decentralize work as much as we can as an answer to the, to the shortage. Uh, and maybe to go a bit deeper into that, because uh, you were saying, look, there is this famous quote, like, and the, the, the smartest people do, will not work for your company. And now I think as PwC, I also work with, with German metal stunt companies, where I sometimes have the feeling that they still believe that the smartest people work for their company. And they are sometimes called these hidden champions who are the best in a very particular product and they have all the knowledge and they have the most advanced people that know everything about these things. And then USPWC come to them, talk about ecosystems and that they need to collaborate with these strange startups that might seem a bit risky or at least be very different. How do you engage in a conversation with that kind of companies to convince them about the added value of ecosystems? 
Mm -hmm. So you're right. So basically at PwC, we also do consulting work a lot. <laughs> That's what the company is named for. And um, yes, we do corporate innovation consulting and a lot in the middle stand. And, um, and also when I do, when I look at my personal um, daily business, um, uh, convincing my own people to do that, um, the answers are the same. Um, so, um, you know, ecosystems um, have proven to be the most successful form of doing business. The largest, most highest capitalized firms in the world are ecosystem businesses. So I'm sorry, there's no way around it anymore. Um, this is the evolution of, 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 of business. And um, so there's this pressure um, to, you know, keep your license to operate. Um, in the face of the changes that we see in the global economy. We have done a significantly interesting study about what business ecosystems actually mean in a quantified way in euros in the next uh, years. So we can talk about that later maybe. So yeah. there is this uh, pull, there's this pull from the market that everyone feels, the Mittelstand, we feel it, um, the markets are changing, industries are converging, um, customer demands are changing more frequently. Um, this is a dynamic that um, everyone feels it cannot be uh, done by him or herself alone. And also, and this is the most important thing, the problems are getting more complex. So when we look at the most important problems in the world, climate change, you know, we can go on. This is nothing one firm can solve. And this, this pull from the market, um, again, also changing customer behavior um, is, is very, very clear to, to, to most people you talk to, right? And then, then the other point is the push. So who in the organization is actually capable of, of thinking in this way? Like we are not the best in the world in everything, mm. I, you, you are right. Mostly German engineering heavy uh, industries, they, they believe they have the best engineers and it's probably true, but they probably are not the best in, for example, data, um, collecting it, analyzing it, making sense of it, making businesses out of it. They're not necessarily true uh, when it uh, truly the best in, um, for example, um, services that customers expect around the product. Mm. And, and you have to find in every company those um, who have the freedom to extend their, um, uh, their business. They, you know, they have the time and the incentivation structure in place so they can work on opening up their firms for, for this new era of collaboration. So it's push and pull. Mm. And, and can you give me maybe a specific example? Because I'm very interested in this because I teach about ecosystems in the MBA and the EMBA classes at WAU. And so the feedback that I often get from my students and they are typically, let's say, in the middle management of the companies or even higher management. And they typically say, look, we see this importance of ecosystems today. 
but we're really struggling to convince our more senior management about that we need to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we need tools to create awareness at top management that we need to make this transformation from a kind of uh, seeing our company as an isolated unit to this ecosystem logic where you try to collaborate with other partners to jointly create value. And, and so what they ask me is really kind of, what can I do on a daily basis to convince my top management to make that transition? And, and I think you as, as a consulting firm, you also need to convince these companies to engage with, with you in a trajectory towards ecosystem. So do mm. you have specific kind of tools or approaches that you use to try to convince these companies that they really need to do this? Yes. <laughs> and can you tell, can you share the secret? <laughs> That's the second question. Then. Of course, I'm happy. So um, ecosystems is a buzzword. And it's, you know, on every level of a company, um, it's easy to mis- and to be misunderstood and to, uh, to use it in the wrong way. You know, people mix it up with platform businesses. Um, people mix it up with all kind of other market um, uh, market um, schemes like supply chains. Like, you know, we've talked about that earlier a little bit. Um, so uh, education is key. Okay. Um, so you need to have something that is proven and that is true and that cuts through the, uh, that cuts through the uh, weed. And um, in our case, when we started at PwC, we, I said, look, we need to insource uh, knowledge about this because we don't have it in the firm. And I've started a collaboration with um, Professor Cavo uh, from ecosystemizer.com. Yeah. Uh, one of the main um, protagonists in the in the ecosystem space in in the Dach region, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, very well known person. Um, and what what he brought to the table was a complete framework, how to educate, how to uh, structure ecosystem work, and also how to make it happen on a day to day basis. Like how do I create an ecosystem as a firm? Um, you know, or workshop formats. Um, everything was there. So we decided not to reinvent the wheel, but insource this framework. And then we, with this, uh, with this expert also having him present at our shareholder um, um, meetings, uh, coming in as an inspirational figure, um, inventing um, clients and partners, talking to top management, um, who are a little ahead in the journey to, towards ecosystem firm uh, themselves is a very good um, um, tip, um, especially in our case when we had clients there who said, look, PwC, you're consultants, but we want you to be more. We want you to be co-investors. We want you to, be, to have skin in the game, mm-hmm. um, to be uh, entrepreneurial with us. And break up, break up this um, client and and relationship into something greater, and and this helped a lot. Like have the framework, and then have inspirational um, people to talk to. Not only the profits in their own firm who are, uh, I, I agree. It's uh, if it would only be me, I would. Uh, it wouldn't be enough. Yeah, but so convincing your clients 
to go into an ecosystem approach also forces you to take a different role, not just the role of a kind of transactional consultant, but also really as a partner that will co-create with your client's value and that, that is willing to take a stake in them, as I understand. Absolutely. So when we do it now, obviously we never do it alone. We find clients and we co-invest, just as you said, and it, it changes perspective. Um, yes, agreed. Yeah. And, and Garrett, because you're doing quite a similar thing, not in, in a kind of different setting. W would you agree with that approach or do you see a difference? I, I mean, I love the idea of incentive alignment. You know, I think for a, a consulting firm to put skin in the game particularly is is super compelling. And I think that's the future of, of innovation when you're getting the, the kind of outside outside support. Um, but I actually I'm, I'm interested in digging a one layer deeper on the concept of innovation and the way that you kind of see it. You know, I spent the first half of my career as a development economist. And when we looked at kind of business ecosystems, it was this kind of troika relationship of the private sector, civil society, and, and government. You know, as a, as a startup guy uh, these days, you know, there's a lot of, uh, lot of narrative out there about creating an enabling environment for innovation to, to take place. There's certainly complaints from the startup community, the VC community that, uh, the, the regulatory environment governance around it is maybe in Germany in particular is not as good as it could be to really drive innovation. How do you see the kind of government's role and the regulatory environment's role in fostering an environment to enable these ecosystems? Do you believe the companies can do it on their own or is there more infrastructure on the outside that's required to, to make it successful? Hmm. Always. Um, <laughs> I mean, um, there are two, you know, two hearts in my chest about this. One is I'm an entrepreneur by heart. So I try to look what I can do first and then ask for, you know, public um, support. On the other hand, regulatory frameworks are very important for innovation. And I really want to try to turn this into a positive narrative here. So when we look at important problems, like I said earlier, for example, climate change, or let's say, um, let's look at how we deal with uh, technology, uh, technological change in Europe, data protection, um, artificial intelligence. Regulation is positive because it forces businesses to move and not to, you know, freeze. Um, and um, I, I personally think that when we look at, for example, uh, the regulation around um, ESG topics in Europe, the taxonomy, um, the uh, SFDR, so I don't want to be too technical here, but there are major changes in large industries, financial industry, industrial sector, um, that is only happening because of this regulation. And I doubt that people in uh, businesses would make such large investments that they do at the moment without the political pressure. So I personally think um, it's good to have a regulator um, watching very closely where we want to be as a society in the future, as an economy, and, and, and act um, 
and, 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 and give clear guidance to companies um, what is expected by them in five or 10 years. Um, so um, on the other hand, yes, there could always be more, you know, of everything. There could be more capital in the startup ecosystem in, in Europe, in Germany, or no doubt. Um, there could be less bureaucracy. Um, yes, uh, but on a high level, um, I believe uh, the public sector is doing a great job. So to give you a more concrete example, we have just joined an ecosystem and built it up from scratch, basically with some important partners in the space of ESG. And, and this, this is its name, Dataland. We're going to launch it in, in Davos, in the Davos meeting in, in, in the beginning of, in the winter of 2023. So um, this is basically a data marketplace for ESG data. It is credibly neutral. So PwC is just one of dozens of partners. Um, it is a foundation. It's a nonprofit. And the main thesis is that sustainability data are and should be a commodity in order for the whole economy to change to a more sustainable economy. We need this data and we should not allow that anyone is monopolizing this data or making a fortune out of it. Instead, we should use it as a commodity. So it's the antithesis to what you'll often hear, data is the new gold. It's not, <laughs> right? <laughs> data should be a commodity and then how you work with the data yes of course um, there should be a commercial use case around this but the data itself should be a commodity and so we're working on this very diligently it's one of the major ecosystem projects that i'm personally involved in and it only works together with the public sector so when we build it we looked at um, when we talk in ESG data, so what do I mean? Like a BMW puts, if a BMW would put all its ESG-related data into a data lake uh, structure, it needs to be safe. It needs to be, you know, it needs to meet a lot of standards. So what we did is we built it together with the European Union. That is, we know that many industries have this need um, for a common data structure. And there is this European data trustee, Eurodat. It's a project financed by the European Union. So obviously we build it on top of this public infrastructure. Um, and um, so I say again, um, regulation is good um, for change, at least in the European Union. <laughs> don't We don't talk other regions here um, and and um, also public actors as you said Gerrit coming in as part of public private partnerships this is what we need so I could talk more about this because I find it's a crucial point the COVID vaccination campaign for example it's a prime example of an ecosystem playing a huge problem to solve very customer-centric problem. You know, you had to get these injections into people's arms in a fast way, affordable way, um, with a highly complex, you know, um, uh, 
uh, cold, uh, you know, supply chain logistics issues. And um, with a lot of players involved, you know, producers, pharmaceutical companies, um, um, uh, doctors and physicians, and, and last but not least, the public sector with legislation, uh, with a lot of, um, with a lot of um, capabilities uh, that could only be brought in by the public sector. So I think ecosystems, you really need to think, what's the really important capability that this player can contribute that cannot be deployed elsewhere in this fashion so well, and then concentrate on that, bring these people on the table. And I think that's, again, something that you could only do together with, with, public, uh, with the public sector. Yeah, and I think your example of data land, uh, I think, is a very interesting one. And as you as you mentioned, this this can only be successful if you accomplish a significant change in the mindsets of the partners involved. Like you said, it's not about looking at data as the gold, more looking at data as a com commodity. And I think that's more in generally the case with ecosystems. It's it's less about how can I maximize my individual share of the pie and how can we jointly create a pie as big as possible so that we can all take a fair share out of it. And I noticed also you already referred to, to a report that you co-authored called Global Business Ecosystems 2030. And I saw that in the report, actually also this the need to change the mindsets of actors in the ecosystem, you see as a kind of core priority to make ecosystems successful. Now, can you maybe explain a bit more based on your experience what, what this change in mindsets for you exactly means and how you can accomplish that as a company? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so the, I think maybe three parts of that. The first part, B2C and B2B are dead. When you start thinking about ecosystems, you need to think ecosystem to human. Every, you know, B2B company who thinks they have nothing to do with the end customer of the product is probably looking in the wrong direction. Um, so uh, second, industry boundaries as we know them are dead. There is no way uh, supplier for, for the automotive industry um, can uh, ignore um, what we have, for example, in um, the space of living, where we see charging infrastructure in people's houses uh, that can ignore um, uh, what is happening in the space of, of entertainment, mm -hmm. how, you know, more and more um, autonomous uh, vehicles um, gives free, free space to, to, its, uh, to its users to do other things than, than hold the steering wheel. So it is obvious that um, the old works, uh, the, the old, um, you know, maybe hundred years uh, of um, uh, industrialization, we, we knew that B2C and B2B is a fact. It's not anymore. Industries are a fact, they're not. Um, and, and then I think it's important um, and that's the third part of the answer, 
to get away from this buzzword level uh, when it comes to, to business ecosystems. And it, that's why we have conducted this, this large study. And, and, the, and the goal of the study that you were mentioning is to quantify the profit pools and the shares of wallet that you can have when you do, uh, when you make the change towards an ecosystem company um, to quantify it on a Euro level, what you can achieve as a firm when you go into an ecosystem XYZ in the territory XYZ. So what do I mean? We have taken data from Europe, from NAFTA, from Asia, from the largest regions in the world. And with universities, you know, we have, we have under, it was, it's a very rigorous study design. Um, and, we, and we allowed ourselves to forecast um, the economy up until 2030. So the next eight years, and I know it's tough because there's, you know, so much that we don't know and uncertainty in the world. Look at the war in the Ukraine and things can change. But the large, um, the large picture that you can find in this study shows you for every firm where the profit and the revenues lie in ecosystems. Um, for example, um, it's important uh, to, to know that the global economy is um, basically concentrating on very few high growth areas. Two thirds of the uh, global economy will take place in one third of the market in eight years from now. So many industries and markets are becoming less significant than we might think. And one, and that is scary for most Germans, one, that, one ecosystem, we call it life area, that is significantly decreasing is mobility. You know, the German economy is <laughs> built on mobility so much, but we have to face the brutal fact that in Europe and also in the rest of the world, this is becoming a less and less important um, area. Um, on the other hand, we'll have rising stars. So we probably could um, guess already, but now we have to prove health, the whole ecosystem of health is the rising star of this decade. So it's the uh, area with the highest growth rates. It doesn't surprise us that, you know, Ole Kalinios, the CEO of, of Mercedes is saying, I wanna, drivers to get out of my cars fitter than when yes. they entered my cars. It's because obviously Mercedes was also a client of ours, but that's not why I'm saying this, <laughs> is, um, is understanding the ecosystem play very well because as I said, health is one of the absolute gross um, hot topics in the space of ecosystems and not to forget, uh, for example, living. So the way this global population is uh, living together increasingly in cities, in safe and stable environments, um, having their needs covered is the 
most the second largest um, um, ecosystem space in the world uh, in the next uh, years. So if you look at this data, you can very easily go to your CEO and say, look, um, maybe we should change something. Um, let's, you see Philips, Philips, this large Dutch conglomerate is a prime example. They had their portfolio and ecosystem is a portfolio game. They had it so broadly set up. And then now in the last years, they sold the light bulbs, they you know, cut down and they concentrated in the life area of health to become an integrated player, B2B, B2C, ecosystem to human in the life area of health. And that's a prime example how you can either what we call make a life area integration so concentrate on one area or for other companies, it might mean to um, do a, a life area um, 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 hopping. Now getting from, from where you are into a completely different field and that only works by partnerships, right? By no. the ecosystem uh, architecture itself, you can enter uh, new fields and and there are, there are basically four ways to play, uh, how you can then work with this data, which we obviously can't go too much uh, into today, but- Yeah, maybe um, I first, I, I want to check what, what Garrett thinks about this, because of course, Garrett, you're a company builder. So I think you also have to think about what kind of areas should we focus on? Should we hop from one area to another? What do you think about this? Uh, do you have investments in mobility and are you now thinking about <laughs> divesting them? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, well, the answer to that question is is yes, we do, but no, we're we're not. Um, <laughs> because I think I don't I think it's hard to make big universal kind of you know assumptions because different companies have, uh, different mindsets and and different priorities. So actually, Teresa, you're teeing me up for the question. Maybe I can take it to a, another level no, that I find re really interesting, which is, uh, Axel, you brought up kind of a couple different examples, right? W one where companies are, you know, maybe having to take a defensive position or are facing certain risks while other companies are projecting and seeing potential opportunities and diversification uh, angles that they can take. I'm really interested in, and I know you can't make a broad answer to this because you've worked with a, you know, I'm more interested in the companies that you've worked with, but what motivates these companies to kind of recognize the, the need for this type of approach? Do you, do you find them motivated by fear or do you find them motivated by opportunity. And I think this is particularly re relevant in the German context where the whole world has been watching the automotive industry here and, and seeing how quickly it's fallen behind to, to other parts of the world. And, and I think some decisions are being driven by fear. While you take an example like Philips, where they're saying, hey, you know, we have a lot of this infrastructure, we have these networks that we could potentially move into a uh, you know, double down on other domains. What do you think the motivations are that are really moving the needle with these companies? Or is it both? Perhaps it's it's a mix of both. Yeah. 
hard to answer. Good question, Garrett. I think it's a mix of both. Plus, I would add a third dimension. Um, when you look at public companies, I think both is true. Um, there's fear always, uh, which is good. Um, and, there's, um, and there's obviously opportunities that no one wants to miss. When you look at non-public, like private companies, maybe also Mittelstand, family, you know, businesses, um, there's a third dimension. Owners want to, you know, uh, have a sustained business outcome that is uh, that is um, giving the next and the generation after that. Uh, the next gen, an opportunity to, um, to, to, to keep the business operating. So, and especially those kind of uh, owners are fascinating to work with because they think long-term by nature. You know, most public companies, they think in yearly, you know, um, in yearly uh, 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 yeah. earnings say, reports uh, and exactly uh, share prices absolutely and 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 it's it's different in this case and when you when you have long-term thinking um individuals uh, business uh, owners or, or strategy leaders you can you can look at the ecosystem play very differently um, you know, there has been this party conversation in the 90s a lot uh, about Nokia, how they once made rubber boots and then they made this and then afterwards they came into the uh, um, um, telephone business and they changed so much. They pivoted or iterated their business models. I think this is one way to create a sustainable company, to stay agile iterative um, but another way is um, to go and have a portfolio I think in portfolios and that's where ecosystem um, me methodology can help you a lot so um, as always in innovation you should have a horizon one two and three right you should have incremental innovation uh, that is nothing you need an ecosystem for and, and normally you can solve this easily with, you know, alliances, which is your topic trees a lot. Um, all kind of less complicated and less uh, costly um, uh, measures. Then you have the horizon number two, where you want to maybe introduce a new product. And there it, you know, gets more, uh, it gets more hairy, the business, and you probably need um, more uh, to, uh, to, to get there when the product is maybe a bit far from the core from what you do today. And then the horizon three, the disruptive business that you want to be, you know, maybe in, that in five years should maybe, or in 10 years should make, you know, half of your profits. Um, this disruptive play is a play you should uh, consider as an ecosystem play. And um, the problem with, many short-term thinking companies is that they don't want to think in five to 10 years. Um, they want to think, you know, maybe in one to five years max. Uh, but as I said, um, private companies, they do have this 
uh, way of thinking. And, and that's why it's sometimes easier to work with them uh, in ecosystems. And we were already talking a bit about macro level. And actually, this is a question that I've thought about actually in the past week, because I was in Brussels last week talking with people from the European Commission. Uh, and it was about startups and scale-ups. But I was really struck by how fundamentally their approach has changed in terms of, I would say, the geopolitical climates. So the, the big talk, when you, <laughs> you talk with these people in the European Commission, it was all about, yeah, we can no longer be naive and collaboration with uh, Chinese companies is nice, but we need to realize that geopolitical circumstances have changed and that we can no longer be strategically dependent on companies in China, which is, of course, a bit, if you think about ecosystems, a challenge. So on the one hand, we have this clear push towards formulating, creating ecosystems to solve all kinds of challenges. And at the same time, we have a geopolitical climate where actually kind of collaboration across geopolitical boundaries is, I would say, rather disencouraged. In, the, in this analysis that you did for the report, did you come across particular issues there or in your conversations today with companies about ecosystems? Do you see that this current geopolitical climate has an impact on their thinking about ecosystems? Mm. I believe that um, um, ecosystems are the more resilient way of doing business uh, than, uh, for example, supply chains. We have seen supply chains going bust uh, with COVID and mm. with the war. And I think it became clear that, um, you know, a kind of a deep globalization is happening at the moment. Um, we're having a battery of plants uh, uh, in Europe, we're having um, semiconductors. Uh, we're getting back all these critical, um, all these critical um, um, uh, products, um, and and I think that's 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 a given. Um, and I, I don't think this will change uh, until we have uh, a more um, deglobalized world um, when it comes to critical infrastructure and critical um, critical commodities. Um, when you when you ask me about ecosystems, I believe that um, so uh, to answer your question, no, we we can't see an effect in this study um, of um, maybe the war <laughs> between the West and China when it comes to uh, the Cold War on an economical level, and we we have not seen any effects on the war and uh, by the war in the Ukraine because the study's data is old. Uh, if it was it was uh, it is 2019 and 20 data yeah okay mm, but still again i mean i can only make an assumption here i believe that ecosystems are the more resilient form of doing business and if ecosystems um let alone between let's say the nafta region so north america mexico canada and the european union would be more intensified which they are not, to be very honest. Um, uh, I think um, that this is a uh, that this is a form how we can build re more resilient businesses, um, um, because ecosystems. You know, you had these people all here, uh, Adner and and Chesborough. You know, you had these great thinkers. So it is a question for them. But if I try to answer it 
you know, in ecosystems, you should not have the one partner that you rely on. And if this partner is gone, the whole concept goes south. Mm. Partners should be interchangeable. They should be, you know, what they should be free to come uh, and to leave. Um, there should not be too uh, strict um, levels of ownership or economic hostages like equity. You know, you should not buy your, your ecosystem partner. You should find a way to make this partner come voluntarily and then stay and other, if priorities shift, replace the partner with another one. That's why in general ecosystems are more resilient. And that's why these kind of global crises um, might affect them less, but I have no empirical data about that. And, and maybe final question from my side, uh, because I know that, that you're actually also doing a PhD on this topic on the site. Why the hell? <laughs> Why the hell doing a PhD next to your, I suppose, very busy job as a consultant? Why do you want to punish yourself? Or I don't know if I have to say punish yourself, but at least go into the endeavor of also doing a PhD on this topic. Well, what drove you to do that? Who are you asking that question to, Dries? <laughs> yeah, I, feel I like don't get it that you're another victim <laughs> here. <but laughs> so maybe you can create a subgroup <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> so first of all, working in a firm is giving you one perspective on, on, on the world and working as a, a scholar, maybe on the side doing scientific work on a topic that is very important, gives you a broader view of things. So I really enjoy working um, on my thesis uh, on the side next to the, to the job at PwC because it, it really opens my mind. I really look forward to the one day in the week where I, where I do my PhD because it, it gives me so much uh, and it gives a lot back that I can use at work. Um, second of all, it was a dream of mine. And after college, I started companies and then I started another one. And out of the sudden, uh, there never was the time in my life. So um, now, uh, I figured uh, it's the right time to 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 get this dream off my bucket list. Interesting. Yeah, I, I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I I wonder if I'm just uh, torturing myself, but for the most part, I've I've been in agreement on that. I, Axel, this is such a fascinating topic. Um, I think we could probably make multiple multiple episodes on this, but um, to kind of tie a bow on this conversation, we ask all of our guests the, the same questions to kind of wrap up the episode. Um, I think one that's particularly interesting to me to hear your responses is the first one, since you've had an interesting career trajectory where you've gone from kind of serial entrepreneur, uh, advisor, moving into a consultancy, now becoming a scholar, doing the work that you do. Um, I'm sure you have learned a lot in that process. So as I would ask all of our founders that come on here, what have you learned over the course of your career that you would give you would give your younger self as advice? What would you tell kind of people coming up early in their careers, like some words of wisdom from your experience that you would pass on? This this question makes me feel old, Garrett. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, so business is made by people and um, and trust uh, in people and, and, and relationships matter uh, a lot. Um, so I, my suggestion to my younger self is to look uh, for advisors, for mentors, you know, for a great inspirational network of people because that's what makes careers. Um, second, maybe um, I'm a kind of person that it looks when you say it, Garrett, it is as if my career was a straight line, but it wasn't. Um, there's a lot of, you know, things on the side, uh, flowers at the way that are worth, you know, smelling. And I encourage everyone um, starting their careers now um, to uh, not to think of it as a, uh, as a, as a one-way street that is straight. Um, that's what my learning is. My career wasn't straight and I, I, I enjoyed every, uh, every detour I took. That's one of my favorite answers that anyone has, has given so far, you know, um, it's a windy road. And if you put people in the center, uh, the good things will happen. So great, great piece of advice. A couple other quick questions, a little bit of insights into Axel as a person, um, silly questions. No one likes them, but they all get them anyway. So, um, you can learn a lot from a person by what they're reading. Do you have a particular book sitting on your bedside table or something that you have read recently that you could share? Um, a lot. I just finished, um, I just finished uh, um, out of the, the biography of Jennifer Doudna. Um, she's, she's from UC Berkeley and she invented CRISPR. Um, and and the, the biography was written by, by Walter Isaacson, oh, yeah. who is writing famous and great biographies. Also, Steve Jobs' biography, Einstein. Um, um, so Walter Isaacson is a great author. And, and this latest book of him is really fascinating. Great uh, scientist, great woman. Um, also, I just mentioned this framework that we're using about ecosystems. And there's just now a new book that came out from Professor Cabo. I don't know, this camera won't capture it. <laughs> it says, ecosystemize your business. Um, it's, a, it's a really, really great book um, that is a ready to use, um, basically a ready to use um, a toolkit, um, how to educate in your firm about ecosystems and how to build them successfully. Awesome. We'll make sure to put the links to those in the in the show notes for those that are are listening. Um, one more question. So when you're you're trying to tune out the world and you put on your headphones, whether you're going for a walk or going for a workout or you're listening to something in the car, what's cycling on your playlist these days? Um, music wise, I, I love Turkish music. Um, so um um that's you know that kind of you know energy and um i really enjoy it um podcast to be honest i have a lot to catch up with the awesome founder podcast <laughs> thanks for the plug axel i appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> 
Don't forget to rate us. That's that's important. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Axel, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really interesting. You know, you have uh, allowed us to take some of our previous guests. I know that we all hold in high esteem and and take their academic work and bring some of it into the world of the practitioner, which I I particularly find really interesting. Um, looking forward to uh, seeing how your your doctoral dissertation goes and and where you take things from here. But thank you from from my side. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. Thank you, too, and um, thumbs up for the podcast. It's real fun. So thank you very much. Cheers. Well, folks, that was Axel Dennis, Director of Corporate Development and Innovation at PwC Germany. To learn more about Axel's work, check out the link in our show notes. And if you love this episode as much as we did, be sure to give us a like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.